How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin our study, let's go to the Lord in prayer. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer, so you have the opportunity to uh, confess sin to the Lord, to make sure that you are in right relationship with Him, that you have uh, been cleansed and restored to fellowship, that you might continue to walk by the Spirit. So let's bow our heads together, and in a few moments I will open in prayer. Father, as we look at the world around us, as we look at what is going on in this nation, the trends that have been consistent for the last 30 years, trends rejecting your word, trends moving more and more deeply into the uh, quagmire and morass of moral relativism, uh, a, a nation that continues to uh, become more and more self-absorbed in the, in the silliest and most vacuous ways. Uh, a nation comprised of people who are are just unaware of of things that involve um, thinking long term about current events, much less eternity. Father, you've given us truth. You've given us your word. We pray that we might be able to take a stand to boldly, confidently, yet not obnoxiously give the gospel to those who need it. To be a verbal as well as a um, nonverbal witness. And Father, we pray that you would help us to uh, reach out because the only hope, the only thing that will transform this nation is to turn back to you. And we pray that we might be instrumental in doing that. Father, we pray that you'd help us to understand what we studied this evening and that we might be encouraged by your word. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, one announcement that I want to make and get this out there. I wanted to wait until after we prayed. Most people who are going to get online are probably online now. We're going to have a little special treat next Tuesday night. And after Bible class, I'll probably cut maybe 10 minutes off of Bible class, but we're going to have a special speaker. We're going to get a briefing on what's going on in Russia, Ukraine, and the Middle East from uh, a guy that, if you've been to Israel with me, you've met him, Idan uh, Pesachovich, uh, is going to be here uh, next week. I first met Idan five years ago, I think it was, in Ukraine through contacts here in Houston, other contacts I know. Um, and he, um, he was, at that point, the director of the Jewish Agency for Israel. Uh, if you know anything about Israel's history, Golda Meir, David Ben-Gurion were part of the Jewish agency until the birth of Israel. And the Jewish agency is an international organization that's purpose is to help Jews around the world uh, make Aliyah or immigrate to, to Israel. And his job was to help identify Jews and encourage Jews to make Aliyah from Ukraine. Uh, there were two years I went over there, and he treated me very graciously and uh, had great hospitality. And then 
he was transferred to take over all of what I call the icky stands, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, all of those former Soviet uh, Muslim countries. And he was there for, I think, in Tajikistan for about two years, and then he was supposed to transition back to Israel. He's originally from Siberia. His family made Aliyah to Israel when he was in high school. And then they they desperately needed somebody to take over the Soviet office. And don't tell anybody, he really doesn't like the Russians. Grew up in Siberia, but he doesn't like the Russians. So he's sucked it up, spent the last two or three years, in our two years, I guess, in St. Petersburg, and now he is transitioning out of Jaffe. His wife's going to medical school, and he has now moved to Miami. And so he uh, wants to come and talk to me about some of the new things he's doing and everything. So I've set up several meetings for him here in Houston, but also asked him to kind of do a repeat performance. Everybody thoroughly enjoyed that briefing uh, that he gave last, uh, last year. So that's going to be, that's going to be good. Okay, open your Bibles to 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel. If you've been paying attention at all to what's going on in the world around us, and especially in our nation, you know that it's it's not positive. We don't wake up in the morning and hear positive, encouraging news. Today, the big news has been what's going on at the University of Missouri and also at Yale, that we've raised another generation of students that are so self-absorbed that they actually think that these imagined hangnails that they're that they're demonstrating against in terms of social problems are really significant. You know, they're just they're so self-absorbed that they can't stand or can't be around anybody that they think offends them. And I always want to ask the question of somebody like that. Well, how do you feel about the fact that what you're doing may offend a lot of other people? Does that ever register, or is you're just so arrogant that you're just concerned about what what offends you, and that's that's where they are. But the trouble is that when we see a culture that has has just spiraled into the depths of self-absorption like this, that it it, it bodes ill for the future future of the culture. Uh, crime is up in this nation. Law enforcement personnel, because of the uh, Black Lives Matter movement and several others, and not all blacks go along with that, by the way. I want you to know that. There are a lot of blacks who are very pro-law enforcement and very much against this. But but those radical elements that are involved with that are causing tremendous confusion and despair in the law enforcement community. And there are a lot of people in law enforcement who wonder if they need to transition to to another job. And once we get Christians who want to get out of government and good people with integrity that want to get out of law enforcement and get out of the military, then who's left? Then we really have a problem. And some people say, well, Christians who can't do, go along with the, with the uh, Obergefell decision, they need to get out of government. Well, then we'll just have a, have a totally secular government. That's a recipe for absolute disaster. We've got a Supreme Court that is forcing a moral shift on the public, uh, which the public does not want. I read an article, great article yesterday. There's there's six or seven counties in Tennessee that are taking a stand on the Tenth Amendment to just completely resist the Supreme Court decision, and more, uh, more power to them. Corruption among government officials and corporate leaders is at the highest it's ever been in this country. 
We have untold thousands, tens of thousands of immigrants that are, are being forced upon us. Not only do we have a flood of illegal immigrants and a, and a, and a government that doesn't want to close the borders and allow, uh, quality immigration. Nobody's against immigration. They're just against these hordes coming in who are not assimilated. Not only do we have that going on, but we have, uh, just a huge number of sleeper jihadis that are wanting to come in, Muslims, uh, and a vast number of these illegal immigrants are not coming from Mexico and Central America. You know, that, that's so 1980s and 1990s. They're, they're coming from North Africa, and they're coming from the Middle East, and they're coming from a lot of other countries, and they're, it's basically a jihadi invasion. Uh, uh, and in Europe, it's it, thank God there's an ocean between us because it's it is so bad uh, what what's going on in Europe. In fact, Sweden, uh, due to the large Muslim population there, which is over forty forty five percent, pushing towards fifty, I think, it, it, it's so bad that that they've now become the rape capital of Western Europe, and they're the second highest uh, number of rapes per capita uh, in the world of all nations in the world, and over 70% of the rapes are committed by Muslim immigrants against ethnic Swedish women. And the, the liberalism that dominates the courts in Sweden won't do anything to protect, uh, protect their own women. They, they, they let them go. In Norway, a report came out last spring that Norway and Finland, uh, 100% of the rapes in Norway and Finland are committed by Muslim immigrants against the the Norwegian and Finnish ethnic women. Ten percent of all uh, women in Norway have been raped by these refugees. I happen to be reading through Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Isaiah, as I was reading, hearing about some of this the last couple of weeks, and this is what happened when Israel went out under the fifth cycle of discipline. This is how God is bringing judgment on Western civilization for turning against him. We have um, a national debt that's more than double what it was seven years ago, and it was outrageous then, and somehow uh, the economy still totters along. The vast majority of Americans have so given themselves over to moral relativism that they don't even know it anymore. And most Christians are just as mired in moral relativism as, as, uh, as the non-Christians. The official unemployment rate is now 5%. But if you factored in all of those who have just quit looking for jobs, it's, it's probably closer to 8%. Three and a half to four million people have just quit looking for work. Uh, that's a conservative estimate. It may be double that. But still we have the majority of Americans that identify as Christian. The problem is that it's such an insipid, compromised, vapid, vacuous, impotent form of Christianity that it makes no difference whatsoever in their lives. They, they don't know what true biblical Christianity is. They just know what it is to have a pep rally for Jesus and a social club. We're not any different from the way Israel was at the time Samuel opens up. Tonight what I want to do is review these first seven chapters of Samuel because it's here that we learn that God controls history. And that's the hope that we have. After I got everybody distressed and discouraged in that introduction, the reality is that we always have hope. No matter how dark it is, 
there's always hope because the Lord's in control. He is the light of the world, and he's the one who is in control and knows every single detail, and he is orchestrating everything to its proper end. There have been times in history when things have been much, much, much darker than they are here. There are nations and countries and empires that have gone through much worse times than what hangs over our head. And yet we still have a huge number of believers. I think we have a lot of believers who are asleep at the switch who just haven't been involved. And some of the recent decisions and events of this last year, I think, and hope and pray, have awakened people. But as we look at Samuel, we see how God transformed Israel from the darkest despair of the period of the judges to the ultimate triumphal period at the t- under King David. Now, it didn't happen overnight. Their failure and collapse didn't happen overnight either. Uh, there was a period of some 350 years during the time of the judges after the death of the conquest generation as they deteriorated and got worse and worse and worse through each subsequent generation. That's how deterioration takes place, and recovery doesn't happen overnight either. From the time, as we'll see in our study, from the time of their their defeat, that absolutely atrocious defeat when the Ark of God was captured at the Battle of Aphek, which is roughly 1104 B.C., until the time David ascends the throne, which is sometime around um, 1010 B.C., you have a period of, of 95 years, and it didn't change overnight, and it's not going to change overnight with us, but the one thing that will change it is what we have. So we've looked at these first seven chapters. You can remember... Uh, Samuel, first Samuel, biographically, it's Samuel, Saul, then David. Uh, it's Samuel, the first seven chapters. You see the emphasis on Samuel as prophet, priest, and king. Then you see the rise of Saul and his complete uh, failure because Saul isn't any different from the pagan culture around him, although I do believe he was, was a believer. You see his rise and his collapse because he's disobedient to God. He commits the same sin that Satan commits. He is rebellious to God. And then we see the rise of David uh, in chapters uh, 16 to the, to the end of the book. As we came to the end of chapter 7 last time, I want to point out what we see there. In the conclusion to this section, there's a significant transition to chapter 8. Samuel judged, we read, and Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. He went from year to year on a circuit to Bethel, Gilgal, Mizpah, and judged Israel and all those places. But he always returned to Ramah, for his home was there. There he judged Israel. There he built an altar to the Lord. So this little conclusion is bracketed by two statements. He judged Israel. He's the first judge that's a universal judge for Israel. The other judges were more regional and and more tribal, but he is viewed as, as judging Israel, even though the places that are mentioned there are all in the central area, uh, in the hill country of uh, uh, of Samaria, and what what we see as we go back and we look at this section, these seven chapters from the beginning, is that when a nation turns against God and a nation rejects the grace of God and a nation rejects the revelation of God, then that nation is doomed to judgment. Israel has a special kind of judgment because they are a special kind of people. 
They are under a special covenant with God that is distinct from all other covenants. But nevertheless, even Gentile nations that turn against God will come under divine judgment. Proverbs 29:18, a verse we'll look at again, says, When there's no revelation, the King James translated it a way that a lot of people hear, uh, where there's no vision, the people perish. That's not exactly accurate, and it's often misquoted today. It's another one of those verses that's taken out of context, and it's applied to a lot of things like having the vision for a company, vision for a church, things like that, if a leader doesn't have vision. But that's not what it says. What it says is when there's no revelation, when there's no prophecy, when when God isn't speaking to the people and they're not responding, then the people cast off restraint. In other words, they just do whatever they want to do. That's the theme of the time period of the judges, that they there was no God in Israel. Everyone did what was right uh, in their own eyes. And this is the period of the judges. And this is a chart we've seen a number of times in this study showing how the last judges, Jephthah, Samson, Samuel, the last judges overlapped as they're dealing with two different oppressions, one coming in from the east, from the actually taking place in the area what we call the kingdom or the Hashemite kingdom of Jordan today. It's across the Jordan and the Transjordan. This is the Ammonite oppression that's coming in from the east. And then from the west, from the area of the, the coastal plains, we have the Philistine oppression. So uh, Israel's being squeezed, and the only place where they can find find any sort of protection is in the that center spine of hills that runs north and south down through Israel. If you've been there, and some of you have been there with me, you know, this is the area that comes down through Shechem, through Shechem, Bethel, I, uh, Jerusalem, south of Jerusalem, Bethlehem, on down to Hebron, and then on down to to uh, 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 uh further south at, at uh, Beersheba. So this is what's going on. This gives us a time frame. And the two battles that, that this section turns on is in 1 Samuel 4, 1 Samuel 1 through 3 lead up to that battle. And 1 Samuel 4 is the battle of Aphek and 1104 B.C. And Israel's decimated, defeated, and the ark is captured. And then there is a turning that takes place after 20 years of divine discipline, Israel finally turns back to the Lord, listens to Samuel, confesses their sins, turns to the Lord, does a, cleans out the idols, and God gives them a miraculous supernatural victory at the Battle of Mizpah in 1084. But that's 30 years or 35 years before Saul begins to reign in 1050. Now, some of those numbers change a little bit. The 1050, nearly everybody agrees on with Saul. Some of those other numbers change, but their relative spacing doesn't doesn't change. But you can look in different ver- books, and they may come up with a little different, uh, little different view. We've seen this cycle of disobedience, discipline, and deliverance in the judges all through this period, and God is finally bringing this to a close. But it's been a period... Of, of this kind of, of just one one action after another that's lasted for uh, about 300 years to 1100 when the Battle of Aphek takes place from 1400 when the conquest took place. So conquest generation might have gone away at 1350. So from 1350 to 300, this is a period, I mean, to 10, 1350 to 1050 is about 300 years, and that would be the time 
uh, the time frame of, of all of this discipline and anarchy at times and military oppression because God is serious about, about his word. Now, the basic breakdown of Samuel is this. We've seen this before. I want to remind you of it, that the first seven chapters is God's preparation to deliver the nation Israel from her enemies by grace. Because at the beginning of this, they haven't turned to God. They haven't cried out to God for deliverance. It's not until we get to chapter 7 that they cry out to God. God had to work through these first six chapters as well as uh, the last judgeship uh, in the book of Judges, which is Samson, to bring them to that point. But even though they are mired in more relativism and paganism, and there are many cases as as bad or worse than the Canaanites, God doesn't desert them at all. And so God is the one that when they turn to him, God is the one who will who will rescue them. And that will lead to the establishment of the office of the king in chapters 8 through 15. We focus on Saul, and then Saul is disobedient. He refuses to obey God. He uh, God says, you have not listened to me, and that's like the sin of witchcraft. And of course, that fits with the the sin of um, the sin of of Satan in his fall and his arrogance. And then we see the decrease of Saul and the increase of David in the last chapters from First Samuel sixteen until we get to Second Samuel one. Just reviewing quickly, the Lord graciously prepares. Get that back up there. The Lord graciously prepares Israel for deliverance through the birth of a son. Doesn't that sound familiar? When is another son born? It's in the beginning of Luke, the beginning of Matthew. And and this foreshadows how God will deliver the world. I've often thought that Samuel ought to be called the Gospel of Samuel because it is it, it focuses. The focus is, begins with the birth of a son that's going to be the one who is the forerunner of the Davidic Messiah, who's David, who is an anointed king, who is a type of Christ. And how does Luke, the Gospel of Luke, begin? It begins with the birth of a prophet, John the Baptist, who's the forerunner of the Lord Jesus Christ, the greater son of David. A tremendous number of parallels there. So this is the first... Uh, first chapter and a half, the second chapter, the Lord prepares Israel for a new era by blessing the family of Hannah and beginning to judge the house of Eli. God is slow in judgment because he's extending grace, but sooner or later his grace comes to an end and judgment comes. Then in chapter 3, the Lord initiated Samuel's role as a prophet to Israel, and then in uh, the fourth division, the Lord causes uh, Israel to be defeated, allowed the ark to be captured so the house of Eli can be judged. Sometimes God's accomplishing something at the worst time, when the worst cases, the worst situation, the most depressing, discouraging defeats, God's working to bring about something great. And point number, and the fifth division in five from 5-1, Covers, this is the largest division of this section, three chapters, five, six, and seven. The Lord establishes his authority, power, and glory through Samuel's judgeship. And that sets the stage for what's going to happen in chapter eight. So we come to that first division. I want to talk about that a minute. 
And we read through 1 Samuel 1 through chapter 2. Spent a lot of time in chapter 2, 1 through 10, because I was focusing on Hannah's uh, psalm there and the richness of that psalm, which has so much to it and, and so much in it that we learn about God and we learn about his provision and we even learn a little bit about the Messiah. But what we see is in the basic introduction, if you remember, is we're introduced to two families. And there's two families, and each have three people. And the first family is a family of, of Elkanah. And he's got two wives, Hannah and Penina. And then we've got Eli, the fat, corpulent priest, and his two reprobate sons, Hophni and Phinehas. And so that's really captures the first three chapters. It's about the family of Elkanah versus the family of Samuel. Three and three, and you just kind of capture that. You're grinning, you're laughing at the little cartoons up there. Well, that's good because that that's, gets it in your mind so you can think through that. It's it's Elkanah and the two wives and Eli and Hophni and Phinehas. And the household of Elkanah sort of represents the situation with Israel because you've got you've got one wife that is oppressing the other wife just as Israel is being oppressed by the Philistines. And the only way that that Hannah can be rescued and delivered from her oppression, her persecution, and the profound bitterness that she talks about in verse 10, the anguish of her soul is to turn to God. That's the major lesson, that God is the one who rescues us even in the midst of of this, this horrible time. Penina represents the oppressive uh, power, the power of, of the Philistines against Israel. And then we have the family of Eli, and we'll get into that a little more when we get into the second chapter. So what I want to look at as we go through each of these sections by way of review is to look at four areas to see what we learn, to be reminded of what we learn. And this is something that is sort of a pattern that you can use when you're reading through your Bible. And I've been encouraged a lot over the last several months as I've been trying to to uh, encourage people to read their Bible, to learn from different people that they're actually saying, well, I picked up my Bible, I'm starting to read it. I can't believe what I'm learning. And uh, people say, well, I'll mention something. They say, well, I just read about that last week. And it makes more sense. That's what I've been saying for years. If people read their Bible, then all of a sudden a lot of things that I say make a lot more sense because you actually know who the people are, where the places are, and what the events are. And, of course, those of you who've been to Israel can visualize uh, those events. I wish that it weren't so expensive. I wish everybody could go and that I could take everybody. But when we read Scripture, one of the little, one way that we can study Scripture is say, okay, having studied this, what do I learn about God? What do I learn about man? What do I learn about salvation? And it may be temporal salvation or it may be um, eternal salvation. And what do I learn about problem solving? Now, I put problem solving in there because that's that's part of the spiritual life. In the spiritual life, we're constantly having to deal with adversity and difficulties, and that's how we grow. That's what we've been studying in First Peter on Thursday night. We've studied before in James, that kind of thing. So that's what we're seeing here. So uh, what do we learn about God? First of all, as we go through this, we learn that God is faithful. He's faithful to Israel. He hasn't deserted Israel. He hasn't said, you're a bunch of stiff-necked, rebellious mules, and I'm just getting rid of you. And he is still there, and he is going to listen to the prayer of this distraught, uh, oppressed, grieving, bitter woman 
who turns nowhere else except to God to get deliverance from her problem, and she understands and why she did. And and see, this is one thing that happens when we're in the midst of, of difficulty as it drives us to God to think about what God is doing in our life, that this built a, a profound spiritual depth in the soul of Hannah. And it's out of that depth that she's able to write this psalm in chapter 2, which is remarkable because it's the foundation for two or three psalms that are written in the psalms, borrow from her language or terminology. It also provides a framework and a background to Mary's Magnificat, that it's her praise psalm after she's told that she's going to give birth to the Savior. And so this is a very significant part of Scripture. So uh, we're reminded that God is faithful. Second thing we're reminded about is he's our rock. Now, that's what rock, the, the title rock as it applies to the Lord emphasizes is that God is our rock. This is what she says at the end of verse two, chapter 2, verse 2, there, nor is there any rock like our God. This becomes, the term rock almost becomes a synonym for God in a number of passages in the Old Testament. Other passages that, um, that you can look at are, are found in, uh, Lamentations 3, 21 to 20, 23, which is favored for many people. Uh, this I recall to mind and therefore have hope. The Lord, through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. So you have other passages like Psalm 36, 5. Your mercy, O Lord, is in the heavens. Uh, your faithfulness reaches to the clouds. In other words, there's, there's, there's no limit to your faithfulness. In Psalm 89.1, which is a meditation on the Davidic covenant, uh, David writes, I will sing of the mercies of the Lord forever with my mouth. I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. God is, is faithful. He's our rock. Second thing that we learn as we go through this is that God is working out a plan. He's working out a plan, and, and, and Hannah recognizes this in verses 3 through 7. It talks, uh, she's, she's actually rebuking the arrogant ones, and she reminds them that the Lord is a God of knowledge. He knows everything. He will judge in the situation. It's by him actions are weighed. And then she goes on to talk about how he provides and how he rules, and the Lord kills, he makes alive in verse 6, he brings down to the grave and brings up, he makes poor, he makes rich, he makes low and lifts up, he raises the poor, he lifts the beggar. All of these things indicate that he's working out a plan. Other verses that go along with that are Deuteronomy 18.15 and 18, which shows it's a prediction there that God is going to send a prophet like Moses, a unique prophet, and that scene is being fulfilled in Jesus according to John 1.25 and Acts 3.22. God is declared as unique. That's what she emphasized when she said, no one is holy like the Lord. And this theme gets picked up when in these seven chapters? That theme gets picked up in chapters 4 and 5. What happens when the, when the uh, uh, Philistines take God into the temple of Dagon? They're going to learn a lesson that God is unique. He's the only God. God is holy. And then what's going to happen to the Jews? When the, when the Ark of the Covenant finally makes its way back, 
uh, to Beth Shemesh, and what happens? They open up the ark, they get their grubby hands all over it, and a, a whole slew of them die because they treat the Lord with disrespect. They treat the ark with disrespect and violate his law. So uh, he's unique. He's holy. That's uh, I think unique is a, a captures a lot of the nuance of holiness. Uh, he executes judgment in First Samuel two nine through ten. Execute justice. That's another theme that gets developed later on in this chapter. God is going to announce his judgment on the house of Eli and his sons, and then it's going to be confirmed in chapter three. All of chapter three is about a prophecy of confirmation of the original prophecy to Eli about judgment on on the family by by Samuel. So that sets things up. And then there's judgment on Israel by God because they're going to be defeated at the Battle of Aphek. And then there's going to be judgment on the Philistines because they 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 treat God with disrespect. And then there's judgment on the people of Beth Shemesh because they treat God with dis- disrespect. And then finally, Israel is going to turn back to God, and God is going to supernaturally defeat uh, the Israelites at the Battle of Mizpah in chapter seven. So all that's related to God's justice that that plays a role all through this section. See what we're doing here is what what uh, theologians call biblical theology. Now, for, for a lot of people, you get confused because you think that's referring to theology that's biblical as opposed to theology that's Islamic or Quranic or Hindu or Buddhist. But, but this is a technical term that's been developed over the last, I don't know, two or three hundred years. And it's looking at a book like Samuel and saying, okay, I'm going to look at this section of Samuel or all of Samuel, and what do I learn from this book of the Bible about God, salvation, man, prophecy, whatever? That's called biblical theology. So that's something to add to your your vocabulary and understand that biblical theology isn't what you always thought it was. It's a technical term for something completely different. So... This is what we look, and then in verse 10, most remarkable statement by Hannah is she says, the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken in pieces, broken in pieces from heaven he will thunder against them. And when is that seemingly fulfilled? At the battle of Mizpah, God thunders, we studied that last time, God thunders against the Philistines and they panic They press the panic button, and they get scared to their very core of their being, uh, and they they run, and the Israelites slaughter them. And so Hannah foresees this. Adversaries of the Lord shall be broken in pieces. From heaven he will thunder against them. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. And then she adds, he will give strength to his king, That and his king is in synonymous parallelism to his anointed in the next line, he will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed, meaning that this is a messianic prophecy. So that's the first division, chapters 1 uh, through the first half of chapter 2. That's what we learn about God. We also learn that God cares about our afflictions. God cares about our, our, our afflictions, and this is what what Hannah mentions when she comes to pray that she is afflicted uh, and, and she is a woman who has a, a, a great complaint. She's, she's bitter of soul. She, verse 15, she's a woman of sorrowful, sorrowful spirit. And so she turns to the Lord to find uh, 
find aid. Uh, we have a number of passages, number of verses like Psalm twenty two twenty four, for he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. Sometimes we think God took a vacation and he's worried about the Iranians or he's worried about Israel or he's worried about something else somewhere on the planet and he's kind of forgotten about me and my problems. But God does not uh, forget the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him for help, that is when the afflicted cried to him for help, he heard God listens. He pays attention. Uh, Psalm 40, verse 17 says, Since I am afflicted and needy, let the Lord be mindful of me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O God, calling out to God for sustenance. Uh, another great great passage is Psalm seventy-two, twelve: For he will deliver the needy, when he cries for help, the afflicted also, and him who has no helper, Aitzer. That's Psalm seventy-two, twelve. No Aitzer, and this is what happens at the end of chapter seven, the Battle of Mizpah. That that uh, Samuel sets up a rock and calls it Ebenezer, the rock of my help, the rock of my help, and so this connects the dots there. Uh, one of my favorite. Passages of comfort in Psalm 56, 8, David says, You number my wanderings. In other words, when we're just lost and, and crawling around all kinds of directions, not knowing what to do, God is writing down, he's tracking us. You know, he's got a little GPS down on us, and he's tracking all of our permutations as we're trying to figure out what to do with our life. God's paying attention. And then David goes on to say, Put my tears in your bottle. In the ancient world, they had these little tear bottles that they would take to a funeral, and then they would, when they wept at the funeral, they would capture their tears in those tear bottles and cap them off, and they would keep that as a reminder, as a memorial of their grief for the person who died. And what David is saying is that God is so compassionate, so caring, so concerned about us and our affliction that he is He is capturing our tears, as it were, uh, to remember uh, our afflictions. So, and the solution, of course, is the law. Psalm 119, 92, if your law had not been my delight, then I would have perished in my affliction. Now, there's a good question here for application. How delighted are we to read our Bible and to memorize our Bible and to internalize it, hide the word in our heart, that's what David says, if I had not made your law my delight. And that's not just not taking notes in Bible class. That's not just just uh, reading about the Bible and learning theology. That's internalizing the Word itself into our soul so that we get to the point where our reactions to life are shaped uh, shaped by the Scripture. What we also learn in this section, is, that first section, is that God's grace is sufficient. God handled all of Hannah's complaints and afflictions above and beyond what she could ever hope for. She went through a period of several years where she's depressed, where she's grieved, where she's weary, where her soul is is just, just under oppression from her circumstances, and God sustains her. You know, we want these bad feelings to go away in 24, 48, 72 hours, and that's too long. But sometimes, God, I'm going to have a great story for you on on, uh, 
on Thursday night. I ran across this a while back, but I was going to use it tonight. But then I thought, no, I need to use it on uh, on on Thursday night because of things that I've been saying in First Peter. But it's a story about about one a man who's considered to be the greatest speaker, greatest preacher in the English language. He was a Victorian preacher at the largest church in London, and his name was Charles Haddon Spurgeon. And Spurgeon would go through bouts of deep, dark depression. And the, what brought him out of it always was the Word of God. And he always said, it's the Word of God that gets me through it. And, and it, it's, it's not all these other things. People want a solution other than the Word of God. That's called idolatry. So that's God. we got 15 minutes. What do we learn about man? Well, we learn that man is depraved. We look at Penina and the way she's vindictive and, and uh, she's just so petty towards Hannah and rubbing it in that Hannah can't have any children. We look at Eli and his laziness and his inability to teach values to his two sons and they just run all over him. We look at Eli. I mean, we look at Hophni and Phinehas and how they're abusing the people, how they're uh, abusing those who come to worship the Lord, how they are turning the women who serve at the, serve at the temple into temple prostitutes. And they are just, they have degraded the worship of God in, 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 in their, uh, their depravity. We see that human beings are dependent we cannot solve our problems apart from God. We can't solve our problems without uh, depending upon Him and trusting in Him. And we see that human beings are destructive. When we walk away from the Lord and we're not trusting in Him, it destroys the culture. It destroys the world around us. And if you want to see the difference that, 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 that Christianity makes, and look at the rest of the world, look at cultures uh south america is a lot better than many other cultures because it's had an impact from christianity but you look at, at at areas in africa before christianity came and look at how christianity changed you look at india before christianity came from the british china before christianity came and look at the transformation that took place when christian missionaries came and it began to change those cultures and and you look at at, at russia and you look at how they are in a godless country now in many of those countries and in the Islamic countries. It's just dark and it's, it's terrible and it's abusive to, to people and Islam apparently. I can never understand why, why liberals tend to have an affinity for Islam when it, the, the Muslims don't recognize any kind of human rights. The only cure they have for, for, uh, uh feminism is beheading. The only cure they have for homosexuality is beheading. The only cure they have for adultery is beheading. The only cure they have for anybody who disagrees with them is beheading. It's like a broken record. What we learn from these first two chapters is a positive, trusting believer like Hannah can change the course of history and can change a nation. There is hope. There is hope. So this is what we've seen. Now, what do we learn about salvation? The salvation that's mentioned here, that's mentioned by Hannah, is that God is the one in whose salvation she rejoices in 2.1 as a salvation from, it's a deliverance from her circumstances. It's not eternal salvation, but she understands that man cannot deliver himself from either temporal or eternal adversity. 
So she realizes we have to be completely dependent upon God. And then we learn about problem solving. She could have looked to Baal or the Asherah, who were the gods and goddesses of fertility, to solve her infertility. But she looks to God as the one who alone can solve the problem of her infertility. And so we have to learn that circumstances, people, and systems can create numerous difficulties, and the solution is always to trust the Lord, always to relax, always to relax, uh, relax in Him. Now, we're going to move on to the, um, let me see the next slide here. Second point, the Lord prepares Israel for a new era by blessing the family of Hannah and beginning to judge the house of Eli. This is the rest of chapter 2. It's relatively short. What do we learn about God here? We learn that God's at work even in the most corrupt and evil circumstances. No matter how dark it became, the, the, the sons of Eli are abusing the people. They're, they're, they're turning the women who work in the temple into prostitutes. This is horrible. This is a degraded society because of their moral relativism, their rejection of God. But nevertheless, God is working even in the midst of those horrible circumstances uh, to turn things around. We learned that, for example, 1 Samuel 2.25 if one man sins against another, God will judge him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who will intercede for him? Nevertheless, they did not heed the voice of their father, that's, Eli, that's the two sons, uh, because the Lord desired to kill them. God is working, and he's got to bring judgment before he can bring blessing. So we learn about God, uh, that God was raising up a leader, and that God pronounced judgment on the house of Eli in chapter 2, verses 27 to 36. And we learn that God's judgment can indeed be awful. He doesn't wipe out the house of Eli, but they'll never serve in the temple again, and they are going to become a fourth-class priestly family, and just and everybody uh, rejects them. So, First Samuel two thirty-four and thirty-five summarize that. Uh, God says, "This shall be a sign to you." In verse thirty-four, uh, that will come upon your two sons on Hophni and Phineas. Uh, in one day they shall die, both of them. He's going to wipe out the family, just about. First uh, Samuel 2.35, then I will raise up a faithful priest. See, first he has to bring judgment, then he's going to bring a faithful priest. Next thing we learn is about man. Humans often think that they can get away with evil and destruction, that we can just somehow get away with it. The fact that God's grace allows us to continue sinning and ignoring him for so long must mean he's not there or he doesn't care or he's busy somewhere else. So we think we can get away with it, but what God shows is ultimately accountability comes through. This is divine institution number one, human responsibility. We're responsible to God, and sooner or later, there is a payday. Now, we learn about God. We learn about man. What do we learn about salvation here? What we learn here is that God's uh, plan for deliverance from temporal adversity may take time. It's not going to happen overnight. Whether it's a situation in your personal life, maybe a situation in your family, a situation in your marriage, a situation at work, a situation with your finances, a situation with your education, maybe a situation dealing with national issues or international issues, it will take time to recover, but God is going to uh, provide the solution. First Samuel 2.35 
he promised to raise up a faithful priest. And that is his solution. He's going to change the situation through Samuel. So what do we learn about problem solving? What we learn is to wait on the Lord, to focus upon him, to cast our cares upon him because he cares for us, and God will work it out in his, in his time. Third division is the third chapter, which is when uh, God reveals his plan to Samuel, and he's going to authenticate Samuel as a priest. And so what we learn here, it has to do with revelation. That's what the main thing is happening in chapter 3, that when God speaks in private, he validates it in public or with other witnesses. In other words, there's no room for mysticism. There's no room for this idea that God spoke to me, God told me, I had a vision last night, God told me I need to go do X, Y, or Z. Unless that's confirmed by something objective, then it's just something that happened in your mind, has nothing to do with God. Another thing we learn about God is he trains and provides the future leaders. He will provide that which is needed in order to sustain and to deliver uh, Israel. A third thing we learn is that God is going to validate that leadership, and he validated Samuel's leadership. So we learn about God, that God is in control, and that God is going to reveal his plan to man. Now, there's something we learn about man, and that is, I'm going to relate this to Psalm uh, Proverbs 29:18, rather, which I mentioned earlier, where there's no revelation, the people run wild, the people perish, the people will fall apart. But he that keeps the law, happy is he. What man has to learn to do is to trust in God and depend on his revelation. But when he rejects God's revelation, what this is going to do is lead to chaos and anarchy. Now, the fourth division, the fourth division, these are the short ones, chapter the third one and the fourth one. The Lord causes Israel to be defeated. Sometimes when we're defeated, sometimes when we go through the toughest events in our life, it is because God is getting our attention and God is teaching us and God is training us. It may not be directly related to some sin in our life like it is in this situation with Israel. Sometimes it's that God just has to get us to focus on him so that he can take us to the next higher level of spiritual maturity. The Lord causes Israel to be defeated because Israel hasn't turned back to him yet. That's the condition laid down in the Mosaic Law and in Deuteronomy that once you're under divine discipline, the only way you're going to come out from it is to turn back to the Lord. And so the Lord causes Israel to be defeated so that he will be captured by the Philistines, and that's just devastating, and brings on 20 really dark years in Israel's history. Now, the the ark is only captured for a period of about seven months, but the the residual impact of that that defeat goes on for another 20 years as they're under the uh, oppression of the Philistines. So what we learn in this wonderful, humorous event with the, uh, uh, the the Philistines putting the ark in the temple of Dagon, coming back the next morning, Dagon's bowing down to God, and then they take the ark and they, uh, I mean, they take Dagon and stand him back up, and the next morning they come back in, and now Dagon's bowing down, his, his uh, hands are, are cut off, and they're on the threshold as if he's begging for 
for uh, uh, rescue. We learn that, that, that God is capable of taking care of himself. God is um, not under human control, and even though the ark gets captured by the pagans, they can't defeat him. We also learn that God is not predictable unless it's based on his word, that God doesn't behave like you might think he would, that the, the, the progress, the situation here isn't the way the Jews think. He's in control, and he's going to take care of himself uh, just fine without any help from, uh, from Israel. And the third thing we learn is that God fulfills his word. Remember, he, he promised that he would ultimately deliver Israel, and he's going to do that. And he's going to defeat the Philistines without any help from the, the Israelites. He's going to teach them that lesson. So what we learn about man is that in the Battle of Aphek, for example, that the Israelites go and try to conduct a battle without God's help. Their man is prone to self-reliance and not God. And then the second thing that we learn is that human beings are prone to religious superstition. And that religious superstition can be the religion of intellectualism just as much as it may be the religion uh, of, of some false god. And so what happens is that the Jews get defeated, and they say, oh, let's go get the ark. They don't pray. They just think that they trot out their good luck charm, that God's going to give them a victory, and God doesn't act the way they think he will. So they try to trot out the ark to give them a victory. Now, the Philistines have enough empirical evidence from how God rescued the Israelites from Egypt and defeated all the Canaanites to where they're pretty much scared to death, and they're just surprised and as happy as they can be that that isn't what happened. Israel is terribly defeated. They lose about 34,000 of their, of their soldiers, and the ark is captured, and they're just devastated. But sometimes what appears to be a defeat to us is necessary to train us and prepare us for the next future victory. And that brings us to the last section. This is the longest section, chapter 5, verse 1 to 717, where God establishes his authority, power, and glory through Samuel's judgeship, his, his authority, power, and glory. And this is that whole episode where God is going to show that he is more powerful than the Philistines. He's more powerful than anybody else's God. He's more powerful than any circumstances, and he can deliver Israel. And we see the whole episode where the ark's captured up here at Aphek near the first uh, Ebenezer, and he's taken down to Ashdod, where the ark is put in the temple of Dagon. And then, take, then, then of course, there's that whole episode with Dagon, which I described a minute ago. Uh, then the Ashdodites don't want him because they're getting all kinds of illnesses. They're getting these these horrific, ugly tumors, and it's and also a plague of rats, and that's eating up all of the grain. And remember, Dagon's the god of grain. So God is just doing all this to demonstrate that Dagon's about as impotent and useless as he could possibly be, and that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is in control. And so uh, the Ashdodites say, let's get rid of it. Uh, they send it to Gath. People in Gath say, we don't want him. Uh, they send him to Ekron. The Ekron say, what do you have against us? And they send it. They, they come up with a little plan like, well, just to make sure this is really God, we're going to put him on a cart, put a couple of untrained, unbroken um, 
milk cows that have just given birth to their calves, so they're going to want to go back to, to, to their calves. And we're going to hook them up to this ark to see if uh, they can carry the cart with the ark on it uh, back to back to Israel. And if they do, then that's obviously a miracle, and that's exactly what happens. But when it arrived in Bet uh, Shemesh, the people there uh, chose how ignorant they were of the law. They just think this is a great curiosity. The ark's come back. Let's look at it. They take the top off. They put their fingerprints all over it, and they all die because God is not a creature. He's not under man's control. God is holy and distinct and must be, uh, must be treated as such. So in this episode, we learn some things about God, and the first thing we learn is God can take care of himself. And there's a great sense of humor here. God can take care of himself, and he doesn't need us to bolster him and to help him up. Another thing we learn is God's not a respecter of persons. Peter says this in Acts 10, uh, 34, that God is not a respecter of person. He says God shows no partiality. And then we learn that God is holy and must be treated as such. Uh, Leviticus eleven forty four to 45, God says, I, be holy for I am holy. Uh, Psalm 86, 2, 1 Peter 1, 16, all emphasize the holiness of God, and both Israel and the Philistines learned this lesson the hard way, that God is not under your control. Uh, next thing that we learn is that God can't control the circumstance. He manages to get himself home just fine. You know, he doesn't need the Israelites to come and get him. He doesn't need to be rescued. He doesn't need to be stabilized. He doesn't need any of those things. He can come home just fine. Thank you very much. He's faithful to his word, and he shows that when Israel turns to him, this is in 2 Samuel 7, he's waiting all this time for Israel to just turn to him, and as soon as they get the message from Samuel, and we studied this last time in chapter 7 where Samuel said, if you return to the Lord with all your hearts, then put away the foreign gods and the asteroids from among you and prepare your hearts for the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you from the hands of the Philistines. As soon as they confessed their sin and did that, all of a sudden thunder, massive uh, supernatural thunder breaks out in the heavens, scares the Philistines to death, and they scatter. The Israelites pursue them and just about, just about destroy them. And so we learn that God is faithful to his word and will be uh, will tr- will rescue Israel. So what we learn about man is that man has to learn that he can't manipulate or maneuver around God. Uh, his fa- all of man's false gods and erroneous philosophies can't provide truth. Judges sixteen twenty three. Remember when the 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 uh, Philistines captured Samuel? They said, "Our God has delivered us delivered into our hands our enemy Sam- Samson." Little did they know, God had to teach them a lesson that, that God did, that their God did no such thing. We also learn about salvation, that Israel could do nothing to rescue God, but that they had to learn that for God to rescue them, they had to learn to wait on the Lord. And so when they followed God's directives, God delivered them. And so what did they call that place when they did that? When they had that, uh, were rescued by God, then what happens is that, uh, that, um, 
Samson sets up a rock. Verse 12, Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called it its name Ebenezer, saying, Thus far the Lord has helped us. God has been faithful in preserving us. This is a line in a well-known well-known hymn. The hymn is, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, written by Robert Robinson back in the uh, late 1700s. And the second stanza, we're not going to sing it tonight, but the second stanza, stanza begins, Here I raise mine Ebenezer. And it's an emphasis on God's faithfulness. He's saying that there's this event in his life that God has been faithful to him, and he has been the one who helps him and has sustained him to that point in his in his life. Uh, he was, uh, uh, his father died when he was very young. Uh, his mother died when he was a teenager. He had to go to London, and he fell in with just a bunch of, uh, uh, with a gang, basically, and a bunch of thugs. And when he was 17 years old, he heard George Whitfield preach the gospel. He trusted Christ as his Savior. And within two years, he was a, a preacher uh, of the gospel. And he recognized that what sustained him was was the Lord. But later in life, uh, the, the story's told that one day when he was much older, he was riding in a stagecoach, and there was a, a young woman who was studying a hymn book on the stage. I wonder when the last time was any of us got on an airplane or a train or a bus or any public conveyance and saw somebody studying a hymn book. This is how great the spirituality was during during that period of time in, in England. And so she's reading this hymn book and as as they talked, um, she was humming this hymn that he had written. And he asked her uh, what she asked him what he thought of the hymn, and he started to weep. And he said, Madam, I am, a, I am the poor unhappy man who wrote that hymn many years ago, and I would give a thousand worlds if I had them to enjoy the feelings I had then. He understood what he, the, the weakness that he had, uh, to turn away from the Lord that he's penned into that third verse. O to grace, how great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. He knew that, was, that he was prone to wander. Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. O take and seal it, seal it for thy courts above. Now, next time we sing this, I want you to remember what that means when, it, when he says, Here I raise mine Ebenezer. It's a, a mark that God has sustained him and helped him and that God is faithful. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this time to study, study your word and reflect upon how you began to transform Israel, how you were faithful to them throughout this time, this extremely dark time in their history. Father, we may have much darker days ahead of us in this country, much more difficult times personally, but we know that you are still the same faithful God. You are the God who has the power to turn this nation around if people would turn to you. And you have the power to sustain us even in the midst of horrors that might come because of the rebelliousness of this nation. 
Father, we know that the only hope for us, the only way that we will be sustained and survive is to trust in your word because you are our Ebenezer. You are the rock who helps us. You are the faithful one. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.